Hello, and welcome to ASMR Tirar de Hoyo. Are you hoping to calm your mind, relax your body, or experience ASMR? Dr. Andrew Michaels is here to help you. When last we met, Dr. Andrew Michaels had used his new knowledge of shadow people to discover and track a nest of creeping vampires. The mother has died, but the father protecting the babies is twice as large and impossibly dangerous. Is there any way to contain the creatures and protect the people living nearby? Find out now in part three, the conclusion of The Creeping Vampire. Hello and welcome. I hope to tell you what happened at that small lake in that farmer's field when we finally got the situation with the creeping vampire under control. I hope I don't leave any elements of the story out. The name of the pond became known as Parsons Farm. It was named Parsons Farm or Parsons Lake after the death of the volunteer fireman John Parsons. They named it in his honor and put a small plaque there. So if I refer to the lake as Parsons Lake you'll know what I'm talking about. The creeping vampire, of course, was hidden at the bottom of the lake with its offspring, safeguarding them, protecting them from the sunlight in the deep recesses of the small lake. It was odd that a lake this small would have such a depth to it, 65 feet in some places. But maybe it's not that unusual when you think about the area around the lake, cavernous strip mining areas, and hills full of ancient fauna compressed into shale and coal formations. Maybe it's not that unusual to have a cavernous lake so deep in an area of remote Ohio. It was windy and stormy that day, the next night. The sun was overcast, and this allowed for a lot of activity in the lake. The small creatures hatching daily from the nest of eggs surrounded by their giant brood from the creeping vampire itself, the father figure of them all. 29 feet long, an exoskeleton so massively dense, we didn't even know if typical artillery would work against it. We had the National Guard standing by with heavy armament, and we were ready with 
even fighter jets. On a hunch, and thinking ahead, I went up to Ravenna, Ohio, to the air arsenal of the National Guard. The Ohio National Guard has a, and the federal government has a air base in Ravenna, Ohio. And they keep the C-140s there, the transport planes. Most people don't know this, but back in Vietnam, the C-140 was a weapons platform. They called it Puff the Magic Dragon. They had a very um, high rate of fire Gatling gun in the bomb bay of, you know, the the transport bay of the ship, the airship. And it would lay down computer-guided fire from this Gatling gun from a high distance, and these planes would travel at a very slow rate of speed in the air. And they could lay down... 50 caliber rounds from this Gatling gun over an entire area. And they called it Puff the Magic Dragon because it was like dragon fire. It just every little tiny section of a field could get saturated with small arms fire. And I thought this might be something to see if they had that available in case things got out of hand. And I was talking to the officers there and explaining the actual problem and the actual situation with this creature and that we didn't necessarily want to kill all of them but if things got out of hand we would have to take the the defensive posture and, and stop the spread of this creature from the area. It had to be contained at all costs. Uh, it definitely didn't belong in our ecosystem but it had some major weaknesses and one of them was light itself. They assured me that if push come to shove and they were called upon, they would take care of it. They had just the right weapon system in mind and told me not to worry about it further and they would have two planes on standby in case they were called upon. They would have them in the air and if needed, they would circle the area and lay down suppression weapons to control any outbreak. I thought, well, this is this is wonderful. Um, I, they seemed like they had a grip on the whole situation. And this was odd to me. Usually the military is a little behind the curve. They're very intelligent men. They're great at their job, but when you present them with a supernatural or a prehistoric, in this case, problem out of their normal range of enemies, they tend to sit back and ask us, the scientific community, what we think. But in this case, they seem to have the answer already. I just took them for their word, told them, for once, I'm happy somebody's got a grip on things, and I left. It was a short drive back to Parsons Farm in southeast Ohio, And by then, with the overcast and the sun dipping down into the horizon, there was a lot of activity. The creatures were coming out, and they were wanting to know what to do. We decided that we were going to try another capture program. 
and teams of men started to gather up and capture the smaller creatures. We were able to capture at least two dozen of them, put them in cages, and keep them relatively isolated, both sound-wise and visually from outside stimulus in a cargo container that had sound-deafening materials on the outside. This way, if the creatures decided to make their call to the giant protectors of the, their race, as they did in the previous nights, they wouldn't be able to hear them because of the sound deafening, but they would also not be able to react if they heard any calls for communal help. Everything was going well. We had, as I said, about a couple dozen specimens gathered up, caged, and properly quarantined in a cargo container. We sealed that container up for safety purposes only, and right around that time is when things started to get quite insane. And when I say insane, that was when the sun went down. The sun went down, the little ones weren't as active anymore. Now it was time for the beast to feed. Their protector definitely had a taste for human blood and rose from the depths of Parsons Lake. He was huge, 29 feet tall, probably around 30, 35 feet in total length, but he could rear up to about 29 feet tall with four of his legs able to attack and two of them in the tail balancing the rest of his body. His carapace was so thick it, it was almost impossible to us for us to envision small weapons fire having any effect we noticed there was three other creatures a little smaller around the eight to ten foot size we were wondering if those were female versions the female version seemed to be smaller than the male version the male version being the one that was protecting the brood and the horde of eggs the female being smaller would lay the eggs and then the male would have the job of protecting them. They seemed semi-aquatic, but they were able to spend unlimited amounts of time in the open air. Maybe that was how they gestated their eggs, I'm not sure. But there was a possibility that they had made it again, and we didn't want this to get out of hand. We needed to take some of the bigger specimens captured. They need to be captured and they needed to be studied. And if that meant that we were going to have to take some of them, kill them, whatever you want to call that, then that was what was going to have to happen because we couldn't let this outbreak spread. And their idea this night was for it to spread. The, the male dominant one, the giant beast, took his claws on his two front legs and literally shredded the barrier that we had around the lake. By this time we had a chain link fence on the outside of the plywood, wood, and plastic barrier around the lake. This was immediately dealt with. He completely shredded it, spread it out, and his brood started to leave the area of Parsons Lake. A anti-personnel carrier, a small tank, I think it was, they call it a Bradley's personnel tank 
um, personnel mover drove up and was about to open fire. The creature immediately saw the threat of the tracking vehicles coming towards it, reached over, picked up the Bradley fighting vehicle, picked it up with four of its legs, and threw it upside down into the lake. The men started to clamber out of the lake. The creatures were on them. It threw it into the lake to feed the smaller creatures that were still in there, being protected by the giant beast. The men were screaming for rescue and being attacked. Now these creatures were small, smaller than, say, a 12-pound dog, and the men were able to kick and push them away, but some of them were getting attacked and getting it's not so much bit, but hit with the siphon hoses of the creatures. When they were attacked, they were able to realize it and knock the creatures away. But they were also trying to swim and get to the edge of the water. One of the eight-foot creatures turned around to come back because it was obvious they were hurting the smaller creatures, and they started to hiss. This brought upon one of the more adult-sized creatures towards the men to stop them from hurting them. We all noticed this, and of course, precautions were put in place before the attack occurred, and men started opening fire where it was needed. We tried to control our operations and only fire as needed. But things started to get out of hand as the great beast slid across the ground very quickly. It could move incredibly fast in very quick motions. And it was always unpredictable what direction it would go. And anybody that started to fire on the smaller creatures, it would immediately attack. So we tried to set up fields of fire where the creature had to go from one group of men to the next. And then they would stop firing, so the creature would be a little confused on what or who to attack. But it didn't take long before things got out of hand. A full-blown battle was beginning to occur. We pulled our troops back, pulled as many men back as we could. Most of the men in the lake were rescued from the Bradley fighting vehicle. And we tried to take up a defensive position and use suppression fire to keep the creatures back. Several of the smaller ones were destroyed or killed, but the large one did seem impervious to small arm fire. We rolled up a National Guard tank into position to fire upon it, and we called in for artillery and air support. I made the phone call for Puff the Magic Dragon, and they started to bring the C-140s into a trajectory to have them do an overflight. The tank that pulled up on to the battlefield took aim at the giant monster and fired one round. The large shell from the tank penetrated the creature's carapace and exploded out the other end. It literally tore 
a gaping hole completely through the creature. It wasn't quite the result we were expecting. We thought it would explode on contact, but instead it exploded when it came out the other side. That was fine, but the gaping hole seemed to fill in quickly, almost like liquid concrete flowing down into the hole and sealing it back up. Was it a defensive mechanism with the creature, some kind of healing process? We didn't know, but the tank quickly took aim and fired another round, this time higher up on the creature between the two top dominant clawed legs. That shell went screaming through the creature and exploded in midair behind it, illuminating the scene, illuminating the giant creature, crossing the distance towards the tank, and seizing it with four of its front claws. It picked up the tank, rolled it over upside down, and slammed it directly into the ground. The men, of course, were safe inside, though they were jostled and probably injured. They would survive the day, but the tank was now upside down, with its tracks up in the air, rolling worthlessly in the air. The creature turned and started doing wide sweeps of its claws. Once in a while, it would grab a man and throw him, or grab a man and slam him into its snout, sucking the life from the man. It was an amazing sight. We were totally outgunned. We were totally out of sorts. We did not expect this kind of reaction. These creatures were trying to set up, in my mind, a distraction by attacking us so openly and hostile that it would allow the smaller ones to escape. It was a good thing I had my contingency in place. And the contingency was just now arriving. The two C-140s were unmistakable. Over the fire and the din of all the explosions, death, screaming, and gunfire from every direction, came the sound of the C-140s flying low, flying in close. They turned and started to circle the area. Their bay doors open. They deployed their weapon. Of course, they couldn't fire their Gatling guns, because of the men below. The friendly fire would be incredible. They would kill as many men as they killed creatures. And that was not what they were going to do. A new weapon. A weapon in case of an apocalyptic event was deployed. Two huge infrared lights. Literally miniature suns fired up from the two airplanes and blasted the entire area below. The squeals, the screams from the creatures as they were all illuminated was insane. The creatures all through the fields reared up on their hind legs. It was like they stood up into the face of the sun. You could see the black shadows of the creeping vampires pulling, pulling, pulling out of their bodies towards the dragons above as they shined their bright lights down onto Parsons Farm. The giant 30-foot-long creature would have 
none of this. You could see the dark shadow of it as the light trained on it. An almost audible gasp came from the creature as its carapace opened on its back. It was a male. It was a drone and like a giant carpenter ant. It opened up its carapace and it had wings. It took to the air and started to fly directly towards the C-140s as they scoured the ground, burning the creatures with the light of an artificial sun. Thank God we had two of them because the creature was aiming directly for one of the planes. Now, in that moment of emergency, they took evasive actions, and just before the giant creature struck the giant C-140, which it would have brought directly to the ground, two fighter jets that were hidden in the area had an open shot on the creature and opened fire with surface with their air-to-air missiles. Great explosions took place in the sky about 20,000 feet up. The giant creature ripped into several large pieces, its carapace completely destroyed. The shell of the creature split into too many pieces to heal itself. It literally exploded in midair. The planes swung around and kept firing their fake sunlight onto the area, burning and burning all the creatures, pulling the shadows out of them, watching these creatures die, watching them scream from the power of these artificial suns was a horrendous sight to see, a whole race of creatures being destroyed as they tried to make their getaway. All of Parsons Field was bathed in this artificial sunlight. No matter where the light hit, these creatures could not absorb it, could not hide from it, could not stay away from it. One of the jet planes flew overhead towards the lake and dropped some kind of missile into the lake itself, and the lake became became a broiling, frothing, foaming eruption. They threw some kind of chemical in that reacted with the water of the lake, and the lake started to literally burn. Whatever was left in the lake was chemically burned beyond existence. There was no life left in the lake or outside and around it. I sat down for a moment on a log, watching the carnage around me, the giant creature hitting the ground, the pieces of it breaking up, the smaller ones dying, everything coming to an abrupt end. This battle was over, and my military friends, my government, for once was very far ahead of the curve. They took care of it expediently and with great efficiency. The men moved in and started to take care of the wounded. We had three men die that night, and it was horrible to know that a total of four men were killed in this entire action, stopping this creature from spreading across the face of the earth. But one small solace came to us that this creature probably went extinct because 
It couldn't deal with the sunlight. The world bathed in sun most of the time. Eventually, this creature would be put out of existence because it couldn't live. It just couldn't live outside of hiding constantly in the darkness. The creatures of the world would know and be active during the day and hide at night so that it couldn't find them. Sure, like an anteater, it could search around and try to find food, find nutrients, find hidden creatures sleeping, but eventually they couldn't sustain themselves. The animals of the world eventually would be able to put them down on their own, and evolution would choose them to not survive, not to go forward in the timeline. The creature itself had too many weaknesses, but its lust for life, its hunger for life, kept it going in the deep recesses of the earth. Fragments of its civilization survived as the creatures of the shadows entered into their bodies. The great loathing of being driven into extinction, driven into the caves, into the dark recesses of the world, fed their lust, their hunger for life, and allowed them to be taken over by the shadow creatures. We brought so many of the shadow creatures together as they proliferated their species in Parsons Lake and tried to rebirth their species. This was a great setback for the shadow creatures of the world. And definitely, it was the first battle in many battles to come. I had a debriefing with all the heads in charge of the operation. I let them know what I knew. And then I found out they knew a lot more than I gave them credit for. My government and my military had preparations to deal with the shadow creatures of the world for many generations. They were discovered at the end of the Great War, World War I. They were responsible for spreading the first pandemic of the 20th century, the Spanish flu trying to bring humanity openly to its knees. We found through the infrared lighting of the fake sunlight we were able to generate, that we were able to bring these creatures to bear, bring them to their knees. We were able to suppress their spread upon the earth. My government had known about them for a long, long time and had many precautions in place. The problem was, until I came to that airbase, they weren't made aware that they were going to need their help in combating creatures brought onto the surface by the shadow creatures. They should have been contacted immediately, and a military liaison should have told me that they were that their expertise was at my disposal. They were only made aware of the situation when I took my time out of my day to drive up to the Ravenna Arsenal and let them know. On further research and investigation, one of the commanding officers 
in charge of the detail helping me didn't pass the order on. He was questioned, and a scary new truth came to light. After his interrogation and questioning, against his will, he was exposed to a bright, artificial light, and a shadow creature was pulled from his body. He was quarantined questioned, and he had no idea when or the fact that it did occur. He would eventually be released. He was a victim. He didn't even know he was being possessed. But this was something new. You know, it's one thing when you know about the paranormal and you know about the supernatural and you take precautions against them. But it was like my friend told me from summer camp when he disappeared into the night after we fought the dead farmer and he disappeared off the internet came a nobody came a hidden person in the world and I questioned why he wanted to remain anonymous and why he wanted to stay hidden and he told me that if we know about them they know about us and this was the first sign Oh, they not only knew that we knew, they were actively taking measures to stop us. Something bigger was going on. This was only a small battle to get us to expose what we knew, what precautions we had in place, and what kind of weapons we had available. Now our enemy knew our strengths, knew our weaknesses, and understood our chain of command. We were brought out into the light, if you would say it that way, and exposed to our enemies. Was it a good report that we weren't prepared properly, that we missed opportunities for containment, for control? Or was it a negative report that we are not prepared, that we haven't moved forward with our technology and our safeguards to control them? The problem is we didn't know we didn't know, and we had to live with that. Thank you for joining me. We have a new adventure next week, a never-before-heard-of cryptid creature creeps out of the darkness, 
to the light of the stories I want to tell you. Be prepared. Things are not always. Actually, things never are the way we perceive them. Stay vigilant. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I'll see you next week. Until then. Thank you for joining us for ASMR Tirar de Huello. Please take a moment to share, rate, and review this podcast. It really does help. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library of videos at youtube.com slash The theme song, Atlantis, is by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tirardehuello at gmail.com. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels, thank you.